All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you, each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying?, what is Chen selling? To sign up for either of those letters, you can go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or you can simply call our office during normal work hours here in New York City, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. Also, I want to encourage you to keep your questions and comments, criticisms and praises uh, coming along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number for Taylor at gmail.com. And I would like to uh, invite you also to follow me on Twitter. My handle is jtaylormedia. I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Avino Silver and Gold Mines, Novo Resources, RN Resources, Kalanex Resources, and Balmoral Resources. Well, today we are uh, really seeing a substantial rally in the equity markets. Uh, a bit ago, I saw the uh, the Dow was up some 373 points. Uh, but seasoned and an experienced fundamental analyst like David Stockman and, and technical analysts like Luigi Amata, Michael Oliver, Dr. Robert McHugh are not buying it at all. My own view is that the plunge protection team, no doubt, came in with massive buying at the open to create the impression among the most vulnerable of our population that the Fed and policymakers are indeed still in control and that they have our best interest uh, at heart. Their message, like the message of any good con artist, is to just trust me and give me your vote and give me your vote of confidence and I will make your lives better. From a fundamental perspective, we know that human beings cannot overrule the laws of nature, though they would have you believe otherwise. I much prefer a scientific approach to economics and the business, and when it comes to technical analysis, uh, as much as anyone I have learned to know over the years, Michael Oliver does, in fact, I believe, provide a sound engineering-like approach to understanding and reading the markets. You know, just as an engineer evaluates the structural integrity of, say, a bridge, Michael provides a reading of the structural integrity of the financial markets. That's why I like to have him on this show as much as possible. However, today, given two other guests, it was uh, just not enough time to have Michael on. However, he was very kind uh, in doing an interview with me last evening at 5 o'clock. 
a pre-recorded interview with Michael uh, in which he discussed his views of the major markets. And uh, you can listen to that at jtaylormedia, jaytaylormedia.com. In fact, it is posted there uh, as I speak right now. So uh, I'll just tell you this about what Michael said last evening. He's, he, he definitely is not buying into a market rally this morning and today. In fact, uh, he thinks the U.S. equity markets are heading much, much lower. And by contrast, he believes that commodities and uh, commodity markets and, uh, and certainly precious metals as well are in the process of bottoming out exactly as U.S. equities are topping out. And he thinks that emerging market equities will bottom out before the equities of the U.S. bottom out. Uh, and, uh, and he also thinks that, they, uh, that that could happen in tandem or at least more or less along the lines and time that the, uh, that the commodities markets bottom out and, and start a new bull market. And he does believe, uh, I think I'm right in saying that he does believe that uh, precious metals uh, will lead the commodity uh, sector higher. Again, uh, go to jtaylormedia, jaytaylormedia.com, to listen to Michael's latest comments as of last evening, 5 o'clock, the 7th of uh, September. Also, I would suggest that you go to olivermsa.com, Oliver, M as in Mary, S as in Sam, A as in Albert.com, for additional information on this man's excellent work, which I will continue to share with you on this show uh, as long as I am able to do so. Well, I have titled today's show, How Much Longer Can the Dollar Remain the World's Reserve Currency? Author and historian William Angdahl and Darren Wagner, he's the president and CEO of Balmoral Resources, are my main guests today. The underlying need for the U.S. and and the NATO forces to engage in continuous wars is directly related to the need to maintain the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. The two are very much related. That's because since 1971, the dollar derives its value not from market forces or from its intrinsic value based on gold, because Nixon took took gold away from the dollar in 1971. Rather, the dollar has been underpinned by oil and by the force of the United States uh, to imply and to pressure other countries to pay for their oil uh, in dollars, it come to be known as the petrodollar system. Well, the title of today's show, How Much Longer Can the Dollar Remain the World's Reserve Currency, really hinges on how much longer can the United States force the petrodollar system uh, on countries that may not be terribly happy about uh, having their pockets picked by a currency that's created out of nothing, out of thin air. And if the system breaks down, what will be the repercussions for world markets, not the least of which is honest money, namely gold, and, of course, silver? The last time I had William Angdahl on my show, he spoke about the reasons for the Kennedy assassination, and one of the most important issues was Kennedy's attempt to turn money creation back to the U.S. Congress uh, as the Constitution required. He wanted to turn it back to Congress and away from what can only be considered unconstitutional private banking, namely the Federal Reserve, which is owned and controlled by major global private banking interests. And this is uh, the key topic that we want to talk to Mr. Engdahl about today. I do want to ask him more about that uh, issue, in particular the Kennedy issue, when when he issued Executive 11110. And the big question I want to get his opinion on now is how much longer can the existing dollar fraud, which is what I believe we have as a fraudulent system, how much longer can it exist and how much longer can it continue 
Uh, and, uh, you know, after all, we, have, we are seeing trillions upon trillions of new dollars created out of nothing, absolutely nothing. So how much longer can a system like that prevail? Uh, if you believe, as I do, that ultimately nature's money, namely gold, wins out over the fraudulent U.S. dollar or any fraudulent fiat system, then gold mining companies like Darren Wagner's Balmoral Resources uh, should replace current illegitimate, illegitimate bankers as the new bankers into the future. Darren's gold project in Quebec is a huge exploration success, and his company is also involved in outlining what is shaping up to be a world-class nickel-copper-platinum group metals project in Quebec. Both projects are in Quebec and very safe place and one of the best places in the world to do business uh, as a mining company. We do have to go to break now, but when we come back, uh, Darren Wagner will be with me to talk about uh, some exciting news, actually, that they just put out this morning with regard to uh, their nickel project. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Darren Wagner. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. 
Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Darren Wagner. He's the president and CEO and a member of the board of directors of Balmoral Resources Limited. Uh, Darren is a seasoned mining professional. He's had 20-plus uh, years of exploration experience as a geologist. He spent time with major mining companies, household names like Naranda and Tech, and he has also spent uh, some time with uh, more junior mining companies, and the one we want to talk to him today about, of course, is Balmoral Resources. You know, in any market other than the current depressed market for commodities, Balmoral would be uh, very well known, I, I would dare say, in the mining space and, uh, uh, you know, on Bay Street and Wall Street and places like that, would probably have a market cap, I believe, of five to ten times greater than it has now. Its market cap currently around 50 million U.S. dollars. And I say that because Darren and his team are in the process of outlining not one, but two very noteworthy uh, and very possibly world-class mineral deposits in one of the best places in the world uh, for mining companies to operate. That is in Quebec. And Balmoral trades in Toronto under the symbol BAR, and you can buy it in the U.S. as I have under the symbol BALMF. This morning, uh, the stock was selling at around 55 cents Canadian, 110 million shares outstanding. It gives it a market cap of around 61 million in Canadian dollars. Well, welcome, Darren. I'm, I'm glad you could join me again today. Well, thank you, Jay. And I think uh, I think your show is aptly named for what we're going through on the market side uh, in the in the commodities right now. Now's the hard times, and the good times are what's uh, what's out ahead of us as we bottom out here and, and look forward. Well, I certainly think so. You know, if uh, if we run in cycles, uh, this has been a long one on the downside, and so uh, you have to think pretty soon we're we're going to see better days. So, but of course, it's the preparation during the tough times uh, that put you in a position to enjoy the good times. And many companies have not been able to do what you've been able to do: continue to explore and develop things. You were able to raise money at the right time to keep things going, and now we're starting to see some great rewards. Uh, we'd like to go first of all to talk. Uh, have you talk about the Grisette property in particular because of a very, uh, a very meaningful press release that you put out today. I read the headlines, Balmoral drills 118.84 meters grading 0.67% nickel. Well, you know, I, I know enough to know that uh, 0.67% or 0.67% nickel over an intercept of that length is, is quite uh, important. Uh, but can you explain to us why, why this is especially important, why this uh, really sort of uh, makes your discovery even more meaningful than, let's say, if that was the initial hole that you drilled? Yeah, exactly. Well, we, I mean, we're we're down. Uh, we've been chasing chasing the deposit down from surface, and uh, the announcement we put out today basically was a thirty percent increase in uh, in the in the in the in the scale of the deposit as it goes deeper. And one of the big things for us is is with these very broad intercepts. There's always a higher grade core within there, but these very broad intercepts open up uh, the potential for what we would term underground bulk mining of a, of a deposit like this, which significantly lowers your uh, your operating costs in the mining scenario, and uh, really does lead to uh, you know a good money making uh, good money making mines, which is where the space has got to get to. So for us to uh, announce this morning a thirty percent increase in size, um, continuing to depth to see these very broad intercepts in the higher grade core zone developed within them is great news uh, you know great news for the company and great news for our for our investors it just says hey there's a 
there's still more to come. Uh, these 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 zones, uh, these holes are the deepest ones we've ever drilled, so it's still wide open below that. But we've added, a, you know, just just with the holes we announced today, we add a significant tonnage on top of what we'd already uh, sort of built here. So uh, we're you know very very happy to see the zone continue this strongly to depth and with uh, with those uh, those good grades and opening up this potential to look at it from a bulk underground scenario, which uh, has you know brings in some significant cost savings as you move into the mining phase. Yeah, and absolutely. Size, of course, is important, too, given capital cost of, of putting a mine in production these days. But can you give our listeners, I, I know that you told me before we went on air that you're expecting to come out with uh, your maiden resource on this uh, on this project very soon, perhaps Q4 of this year. But could you give us some sense of what uh, the known dimensions of mineralization are at this time, or is it too early to do that even? You, you know you're yeah. open at depth and a long strike in various yeah, directions. Yeah, so we've seen we've seen about we we've intersected it uh, for about 500 meters long strike, and uh, we've now seen it uh, down to 500 meters vertical depth. It's uh, it's open off to the northwest, and it and it's open to depth. And like I say, in particular to depth, we're seeing these uh, these very wide uh, these very wide well mineralized intercepts to depth. So I think the uh, the big growth dimension for us is is deeper, and while 500 meters might sound deep, in the part of the world where we're operating, uh, there are a number of mines operating below 2,000 meters depth and uh, down to about I think about 3,500 meters. So really, it's still from an Abitibi, you know, Quebec perspective, uh, 500 meters is is kind of scratching the surface, in particular with those great big wide intercepts we're seeing. Yeah, and you have the the engineering capabilities, of course, as you as you point out, of going to great depths with the in that area of the world, at least. Um, so you, you've also you, you some interesting gold values that came along with this announcement today. Did you, did you not start out looking uh, exploring primarily for gold, and you ran into this nickel deposit there? Exactly. Yeah, this was this was actually originally. Uh, the the area we were drilling in, we'd actually had a gold discovery that's about uh, located about a kilometer away from the the nickel uh, the nickel zone. Um, found the nickel zone, you know, more or less by accident. We'll call it good science, getting you to the right place. Um, but we've also seen as we've been drilling uh, on the on the nickel zone. Uh, three or four zones of gold mineralization that are proximal to the nickel discovery, and they should be. This, uh, the nickel discovery sits immediately adjacent to the big regional fault system that hosts a detour 80 kilometers off to, uh, mm-hmm. off to our, our west. So it's a big you know, fluid pipeline that's bringing the gold-bearing fluids in. So, yeah, this, you know, we had a, a 10-gram, a third of an ounce intercept over about 4 meters or 12 feet, um, just proximal within a few hundred meters of, uh, of the nickel zone. So, you know, maybe some added value uh, bonus for, uh, for us in doing the nickel work is that we, uh, we can add some high-grade gold ounces in there as well. Uh, well, I guess as you continue to uh, explore and develop there, we'll, that will come into focus uh, sometime in the future. Uh, well, nickel is the most valuable project, uh, most valuable mineral there. You do have, uh, you have some copper and you have some platinum group metals there, I believe, as well. Uh, but what can you tell us about nickel, um, the, the prospects for nickel right now? What, what does the nickel market look like? I mean, all the commodities, of course, are really down hard now. But what, what are the um, economic prospects? What are the supply and demand picture what is the supply and demand picture i should say for for nickel going forward well i think i think nickel is the one the one base metal um where the analysts uh and the major producers are in agreement and and basically it doesn't matter whose analysis you look at 
virtually every one of them is calling for an actual supply deficit of nickel um, to kick in either going late into this year or early next year. We're starting to see what were near record inventories in, in uh, warehouses in London start to fall off. Um, we are seeing a large chunk, you know, some of the producers shut themselves down. And into this, we have a, a, an actual physical deficit of nickel. Nickel is one of those metals. Is actually the use is growing uh, year over year by about four percent, and that's and that's globally. That's not a China specific story. It's it's globally uh, that this growth is ongoing, and we're certainly not replacing it. As a matter of fact, when we look into the cupboard to see what's of it, what's coming up in the terms of nickel projects coming in the pipeline. Um, there's two or three. It's it's very very skinny. So there's a call for a deficit to kick in uh, later in this year. You're looking at an opportunity to do the classic quote unquote buy low here. Um, you know a metal that is uh, is beat down to you know six seven year uh, lows, but where every marker you want to look at, every analyst, every major producer are all saying the same thing. It doesn't happen very often, um, but in the nickel space it is. So look for nickel to begin to move out as we go a little later in the year and into the first quarter of 2016, um, simply based on supply and demand. Okay, well, I guess you're going to come up with uh, a lot of, you know, things like metallurgical work and things like that will, will come later after, after, you, uh, after you come out with your maiden resource there, uh, or is there anything you can tell us now on metallurgy? Actually, the network's underway, and we actually hope to have something into the marketplace uh, over the next uh, three, three to four weeks on the metallurgical front. It's been a very important component in the nickel world um, that, that your uh, metallurgy works, uh, so it's, it's important to do it early before you go spending too much money on a project. We've done a little bit of preliminary work very early that said, yeah, it looks good. Um, but the full uh, the full workup will actually be available to you in the next three to four weeks, and that'll set the tone um, both for investors in the market, but in particular for the corporates um, that are out there, the nickel producers of the world. Uh, that's obviously a very significant piece of information to them. They've got already got a sense of scale and scope on uh, the zone we're drilling, and the next major piece of information they need to make a you know uh, an informed decision on on what we're doing is that metallurgical component. So that should be out in the next three to four weeks here. Yeah, you major. You mentioned major nickel producers, and uh, you are an exploration company. That's your, that's your skill set. That's your company, and and I suppose I would just have to think that uh, this kind of news today uh, sort of increases as it increases the tonnage and the scale of this thing. It's it's probably got to be getting the attention of some of those guys. But uh, perhaps you can comment that on that sometime in the future. I don't know, but. Uh, in any event, so that's just that's just one of two, uh, what I think is are major, really exciting stories. You also uh, have a, a, a gold discovery. You mentioned a little gold discovery there, but you have a bigger one uh, that is uh, along the uh, uh, along the Sunday Lake Fault Zone, uh, heading over towards. You know, the biggest, most successful pick that I had, one of the most successful picks I had was Palangio. Palangio Mines years ago got it at a few pennies. And, uh, and, of course, the rest is history with the Detour Lake Gold Deposit, Detour Gold now putting it in production. But that's right along that same uh, Sunday Lake fault zone that you're talking about where both your discoveries are located, um, the Grassette as well, uh, as your gold, depo- your gold deposit that you're working on. Tell us a little bit about uh, the Marchioneer 
gold deposit. How, what what do you have going there? And I, I mean, there was I just know that you have some extremely high grades there. One was just ridiculously high grade, like a, a, like one thousand one hundred thirty eight grams over four point eighty seven meters. I mean, that's just that's insane, and certainly, of course, not representative by any means. But what can you tell us about that? And how soon might you have a resource there that we can start to sink our teeth into? Yeah, so we've been we've been working on on the Martin Air project, and you're and you're exactly right. That that plumbing system that that uh, that created Detour is what we've been chasing. They're over on in Ontario. We we own the, about seven hundred uh, kilometers, seven hundred square kilometers, almost hundred kilometers of that pipeline in Quebec. So Martin Air sits about forty kilometers from Detour's front door, and much like Detour was in its early stages, where it was a high grade underground project that produced a couple of million ounces at around. Six grams, uh, six grams a ton. That's a lot of what we're seeing in the Martin area. So we're seeing, you know, as you point out, occasionally exceptional grades, but globally average grades in anywhere from sort of five to eight grams in the core mm. of the zone. Uh, fairly, you know, fairly pretty much vertical. Um, so we've been working at getting that delineated at the same time, trying to balance it with uh, the delineation over it at. Um, at uh, at the uh, Grisette zones, and so it's tracking probably just in terms of uh, initial resource, probably tracking in time just a bit behind um, Grisette. So maybe early early 2016 for an initial look at uh, at the resource at Martin Air. But you know the winter drilling program, uh, you know, produced some exceptional, continued to produce exceptional results. So we had 19 grams over 44 meters, and uh, you know, uh, multiple hits in the sort of eight to 10 gram range over five to 10 meters, sort of thing. So we're seeing the buildup of a significant quantity of high grade shallow. Um, there we're only dealing with basically surface down to 250 meters. Mm. Um, in what we've drilled, 90%, 95% of our drilling very shallow. We've intersected it down to similar grades and thicknesses down to about 400. But most of our focus right now is, is on the shallow potential there, i.e. the kind of potential where it wouldn't cost, where there would be a low-cost exercise to, uh, to get started on. And um, that's typically how these things in the Abitibi evolve. You put together the shallow ounces, you make sure that'll justify the economics, and then the deep, the deep is your, you know, your bonus is your gravy. So we've seen it down to about 400. It's open below that. Um, it is, you know, the zone itself is about 1,200 meters long. There's multiple components in there, and in that general area, uh, you know, we have about eight or nine other high-grade discoveries where we haven't. You know, had the time and, and dollars yet to get the density of drilling into those to see whether they will also add into the equation as we go forward on that high grade basis. But that's really the focus there is on grade. We think that's where it has to be in the gold space these days on, uh, on, you know, low capex, uh, high grade projects. And that's exactly what we see at Martin Air. Sure. Well, that's exciting. I mean, to get those kind of grades coming up to, to surface, uh, clearly would be, uh, very, very exciting. Well, what are some of the drivers that investors should be watching? I guess you've got, you're going to be coming out with your, uh, you're going to be coming out with your resource numbers on Grisette and your resource numbers then a little later, as I understand it, perhaps the first quarter of 2016 for the, for the gold deposit. 
Yeah, so I think, I think you know, near-term drivers for us, obviously we, we've been running multiple drills over the summer, so there's a, a wealth of uh, information to come off those drill holes over the fall-winter season here. Um, looking for the met work off of actually both zones, off the gold and off the uh, off the nickel. Clearly the, the two resources uh, become significant drivers as well. And then keeping an eye just, uh, you know, like I said, in particular, uh, you know, like gold's a little harder call as to where it's going and when it's going there. But keep an eye on that nickel space because I think there's a free ride to be had um, both probably in us and, and other you know, companies in that nickel space as that price begins to move back towards something a little bit more normal and as we hit into that supply deficit that we see coming uh, in, uh, in 2016. So I think you could get you know, a fairly decent run just on, the, uh, on that metal price alone. Well, as you point out, there aren't too many other companies to keep your eyes on with regard to the nickel space, and certainly not too many with the kind of exciting story that you're talking about. So we really look forward to that uh, resource number. That's going to be exciting and uh, will help us understand a little better and, and perhaps get a sense of what the valuations could be there. So I, I really uh, – is there anything else? We're really out of time. It goes so fast here with you. But what anything you'd like to sum up here and then tell people I, – I guess you basically told them why they should be looking at your project. Yeah, but, uh, I think uh, – you know, yeah. we're a bit of a unique. We're a bit a bit unique in that we offer exposure across both spaces, right? You know, with with uh, you know, we'll hope we'll hope the gold market continue. You know, starts to respond, but we also also offer that exposure to the nickel market. And we offer it in a great place uh, with great logistics and uh, with a company that you know has been there, done that, uh, a management team that's been able to navigate tough markets previously. One more quick question. Money is always an issue. How are you stacked up now? Are you going to have to go back to the till anytime soon? No, there's between 7 and $8 million in the Treasury, okay. and that's uh, with, with most of what we've been doing this summer already worked through it. So uh, we're in pretty good shape there, and uh, you know, we tend to be, uh, you know, we'll finance opportunistically and try and put our, uh, when we do that, with our paper with good places. But there's no, you know, no pressure drivers on us. We'll look for moments when it makes sense to us and our shareholders to do something there, but uh, no pressure in our head to do anything in the near term. Oh, very good. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to talking to you again sometime in the near future. Thank you so much, Darren, for being with us, and uh, all the best, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just keep watching what you're doing and passing it along to our listeners. Thank you so much. Okay, Jay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Well, folks, we do have to go to a break now, but don't go away. We'll be back with William Engdahl. Uh, he's, we're going to talk to him about uh, you know, how much longer can the dollar remain the world's reserve currency. And uh, he has some very great and very interesting insights into geopolitics and the monetary system. So you're not going to want to miss what William Engdahl has to say. We'll be right back after the break. Some things never go out of style. In the gold business for over 100 years, high-grade Canadian gold discoveries have been in vogue amongst investors. Balmoral Resources has continued to deliver high-grade results from a series of new discoveries in Quebec. If you're looking to upgrade your portfolio in the fall with some golden highlights, learn more about Balmoral at balmoralresources.com. Balmoral trades on the OTCQX under the symbol BALMF and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol BAR. Calinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Calinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. 
Kalanex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalanex by visiting Kalanex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X.ca. Kalanex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for a second time William Engdahl. Mr. Engdahl is an award-winning geopolitical analyst, strategic risk consultant, author, professor, and lecturer. And after earning a degree in politics from Princeton University and graduate study in comparative economics at Stockholm University, he worked as an economist and investigative freelance journalist in New York and Europe. And I think that is very, very important because I'd much rather have a freelance guy with me uh, who's free to, uh, to talk and say what, he, what he's discovered than to have someone who's working for a mainstream uh, firm that is not necessarily so free. I don't want to spend too much more time reading his biography. It is uh, at the Voice America Business Channel on my page at the Voice America Business Channel. So go there, learn more about this man, uh, or go check him out uh, on the internet to learn more about him and, and all the work that he's done. Thank you so much for joining me again, William. Thank you, Jay. Uh, always good to talk to you. I believe that I'm talking to you, uh, you're in Germany again today when we're talking, yeah. right? That's right. Uh, yeah, but you, are you born born in the United States? Yes, I grew up in Texas. I'm very much American. Oh, and a still American citizen, but have been living in Germany for a while. You know, I really would like to have a better sense of what the feelings are in Germany about geopolitics and what's going on. And maybe we'll touch on that, because I have a question I want to ask you about something that the Secretary, uh, our Defense Secretary, recent, or Secretary of State, Kerry, recently said about the Iranian agreement. But mm-hmm. uh, hopefully we'll get to that. But let me just ask you, as we start... Out uh, the gods of money, which I'd like to focus on today, uh, you can't serve two masters. You you quoted that uh, verse from Matthew, Matthew six twenty four, at the front of your book. Uh, but you also mentioned there. You said uh, this book is a history of the tiny clique of international bankers who created Wall Street and who control it today. And they did the city, or as they did the city of London, until the First World War. 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about the City of London? I mean, uh, who who is the City of London? I mean, I've been in London walking around the financial area. Was I in the City of London? Are, are they not just simply a part of the legal structure of the UK? Or are they somebody separate from the UK? It's, if you trace British history going back to the founding of the Bank of England, the City of London is actually like Vatican City in, in Rome. It's a city-state inside of the UK, the United Kingdom, inside of Great Britain, inside of London itself as a municipality. The Queen of England has to be granted permission to come into the city of London. It's, wow. Uh, it's, this isn't uh, widely spoken about, but this is, this is how it is, and it has... Uh, well, the Bank of England was created as a private central bank. There's a distinction that uh, I want to make between central banks, which uh, I'm sure you've mentioned on your program uh, many sure. times, but central banks and national banks, because uh, the American colonies had a form of banking that Benjamin Franklin played a crucial role in introducing. It was known as colonial script and the money was interest-free it circulated as a means of exchange between farmers and uh, city dwellers and so forth uh, exchange for goods and not as a means of compounding interest and uh, making the population into debt slaves mm-hmm. and when when the uh, the British home country uh, realized what was going on and why why the colonies were so prosperous that they uh, they abolished the script and uh, demanded a form of taxation. So this, and of course the, the country went into debt, the economy went down, unemployment rose, and uh, everything else that follows when you have this kind of private central banking uh, usury control of money. So that was the real background to the American Revolution. It's almost not possible to find it in the history books. Yeah. And then then uh, just to take it a step further... Alexander Hamilton, most Americans think if they've read read anything about the early colonial history or, or uh, post-Revolutionary War history, that Hamilton uh, devised the plan for creating the uh, Bank of the United States. Well, what's not generally talked about is that the Bank of the United States was not a public bank, but it was owned by private investors. The leading investor in the bank was the Rothschild family in London the biggest banker in the world at that time, mm-hmm. through surrogates and, and actually directly. So the battle of the United States, and uh, I go through this in, in uh, uh, actually going, going back more or less to the Civil War, uh, for these private banking interests, the merchant, international merchant banks, J.P. Morgan uh, uh, and so forth, to literally step by step take over the sovereignty of the United States of America through their introduction of the debt system and the public debt as uh, is, is a main vehicle. So, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, so was this uh, the script uh, system that uh, Benjamin Franklin set up, was it, uh, did, it did not engage fractional reserve banking then as our current system no, does? No, no not, not at all. Not at all. Okay. And so it was an honest system. It was an honest system. It was an honest system and it, yeah. it was the same or similar principle to uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln's greenback that were issued during during the Civil War that allowed uh, allowed the North to finance the war costs. And uh, the first thing that, uh, that was done after the assassination of Lincoln 
was to repeal the greenbacks and call them in. Uh, oh. Yeah, so, that's very interesting. That is very, yeah. very interesting. Very, very important. Uh, people should understand that, realize that, because uh, nobody knows that. I mean, very few people know that. That, that that's no, what's yeah. that's what's going Kennedy, on. Kennedy, I go through this also in my in my uh, Gods of Money book. But JFK, shortly before he was assassinated by Alan Dulles's friends and and uh, Lyndon Johnson's friends and so forth, uh, not only was he winding down the engagement the war in Vietnam that hadn't yet become a war but it was a uh, on the brink of it but uh, he introduced uh, silver certificates of the United States Treasury not Federal Reserve notes and he did that in a small quantity but the implications David Rockefeller wrote a letter to the editor I think of the New York Times it's in the book uh, the then the chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank and uh, he was absolutely foaming at the mouth about this step by Kennedy. So, and and this uh, and that is actually in your book. Yes, it's in there. Okay, and it was uh, Executive Order one 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 zero, I believe it was that Kennedy issued. And you talked about this the last time you were on the show about mm-hmm. how he issued that. As a matter of fact, it really struck a chord with me because I happen to own one of those five dollar uh, notes. I've kept it. Uh, uh, clearly, if I took it to the bank, <laughs> I could spend it now and probably for $5, but it would have entitled me then to five silver dollar coins, which would have yeah. been worth an awful lot more. More than $5, yeah. Right. And I think you indicated the last time you were on that, in fact, the Treasury and not the, the central bank, not the Fed, but the Treasury had issued uh, yes. 10s and 20s as well, um, yeah. silver certificates, but they never were uh, circulated, I guess, when Kennedy was killed then. Was that executive order repealed? Or was it just? I don't know formally if it was repealed, but the uh, silver certificates were completely called in and stopped, and uh, you never heard anything more of it. So, right, Lyndon Johnson right. wasn't about to buck Wall Street right. or the military industry complex. Right. All right. So, uh, so this uh, sort of the the powers behind the throne. I guess we've heard that that that's uh, the that term before i suppose those would be uh the rothschilds of, uh, mm-hmm. and people like that that actually well, it's a rockefeller actually, the US yeah. and the, not only the rothschilds and there okay, so. there are actually during the uh during the 1920s after world war 1 uh the british in the city of london could not believe but the british government that uh uh, the United States was demanding repayment of the war loans that had allowed uh, London and France, <coughs> excuse me, to finance the finance the war against Germany, and that was uh, an attempt by the House of Morgan, which was then the leading Wall Street house, J. P. Pierpont Morgan's bank, J. P. Morgan and Son and Company, that they wanted to establish an American gold system in Europe. As, as an imitation of what uh, London did for the previous century. Uh, London was bankrupt coming out of the war, and Washington uh, demanded, or the U.S. Treasury, which is Wall Street, demanded that London pay back every penny of its war debts, and France as well. So that became the Versailles German Reparations Clause that gave Germany so guilt for World War One, and that they had to not only surrender their naval fleet and their colonies in Africa uh, and this, that, and the other thing, but they had to agree to uh, pay back these war reparations to Britain and France. And the sum of the war reparations, it took two or three years to 
nail down a, a dollar amount, the sum was equal exactly to what America or the U.S. Treasury and Wall Street were demanding from England and France for their war loans. So that tells you how this debt slavery system works. So the uh, so the Treaty of Versailles essentially uh, uh, the Britain and and France demanded re- reparations from Germany. We know where that led uh, to the Second World War and the problems yeah. inside of inside of uh, inside of Germany. But uh, so let me understand this. So the United States was demanding the repayment of loans, so that so that Britain and France demanded this repayment from from Germany. From Germany, so yeah. That, so that they could repay the loans to the United States, essentially that was being demanded by the Wall Street tycoons, essentially at that time, J.P. Morgan. Yeah, and Rockefeller is a junior player okay. then. So, until- yes, and, and then as J.P. And when J.P. Morgan passed away, then the Rockefellers became very prominent, didn't they, in, in the United States? Well, it uh, didn't work the scenes. quite so fast. Uh, J.P. Morgan passed away in ni- 1913, uh-huh. But his son carried on, and the Morgan partners were enormously powerful. But uh, it was the gold standard that J.P. Morgan established with U.S. government backing in Europe by extending loans, $100 million a pop, to Italy, uh, Mussolini's Italy, fascist Italy, to Germany for the uh, Dawes plan, uh, reparations plan, to uh, France and, and other countries. So then... They had the gold backing of the dollar to establish uh, an American gold standard to replace the British because the British, at the beginning of the war, were forced to go off the gold standard. And uh, that really put London at a huge disadvantage. So there was a big power struggle going on. And I, I characterized the period between 1914 and 1945 as one single period of war to decide who would succeed the British Empire. The British Empire uh, was on its dying legs. It, it had a Great Depression that lasted 25 years, beginning 1873 up until the 1890s, and never recovered from that. The industry of Britain was just hollowed out, the same, much the same as uh, America today with the, the off outsourcing, offshore uh, production and, and uh, and so forth, and disinvestment in infrastructure in, inside the United States over the last 35 years. Um, okay, so so that's uh, so. Then, if, if Germany had prevailed, they would have been the uh, the world's held the world's reserve currency. Then, uh, I don't know if we would have had several reserve currencies or not. I, th- I think the uh, the thing that I'm looking at, and it's really quite fascinating, is. What would have happened had the Tsar Nicholas II of Russia not been manipulated into making a secret alliance with Britain before World War I? Mm-hmm. Uh, a secret alliance with Britain that led to a British-French-Russia triangle to encircle Germany uh. as the, the rising industrial threat, much the way... Washington views or the neoconservatives view China today and Russia today in a different sense. And uh, had that not happened, the natural course of events would have brought Germany and Russia much closer together in a positive way. Russia's economy was not uh, in the dregs that that we're told in the history books. They had a a public banking system uh, virtually up until the outbreak of of the uh, Bolshevik Revolution under Tsar Nicholas, 
and uh, the economy was growing in a very healthy way until the war. Uh, just a couple of quick questions here that come to mind. One, uh, getting back to the gold standard uh, system that J.P. Morgan imposed on Europe. Again, yeah. that was not that was a fractional reserve system, was it not? It wasn't a, it wasn't an honest banking system. It wasn't an no, honest banking fractional, system. Fractional, all of this, anything that Wall Street does is fractional reserve. So right. It's all about. It's all. It, it, it's really a legalized theft system, isn't it? Without people yeah, really yeah. understanding it. That well, you can banks, multiply. Yeah. Yeah. The banks yeah. create uh, the fractional reserve. Is the the central bank gives a, a fraction that they're allowed to, to loan out as a, a multiple of the reserves they hold with the central bank. Right. And uh, I think today it's around 11 to 1. Yeah. So they just create money out of thin air and demand interest for that money from, from the uh, borrowers. And uh, that's, that's the, the system. And it just we, we've seen what it, it brings, a continuous cycle of boom and depression, uh, unemployment and so forth. Boom and depression and unemployment. Yeah. And, and it's... A gigantic Ponzi scheme is what it is, a legalized Ponzi scheme, legalized yeah. through the barrel of a gun, essentially. Yeah, and what, what I consciously uh, tried to, or consciously set out in the course of writing the book, is how each time there's this boom and collapse that the, the bankers engineer, they consolidate more power. They decide when the collapse right. is going to come. They get their money out, and when, when prices go around the basement, they come in and buy the, the choice assets for pennies on the dollar, and that's right. how they built their power, through theft, through corruption, through uh, buying politicians to change the laws, mm-hmm. and so forth. Right. Well, so now we've had a seven-year bull market, in, at least in U.S. equities. Yeah. Uh, we've seen some, uh, some indication. I firmly believe that we're ready for another bear market, a substantial one. And yeah. what we can expect is more of the same, probably. These guys will probably are bailing out now. We've seen... Uh, you know, a, a leading technical analyst talk about how the smart money was been has been coming out of the market in the last year or so, probably. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sucking little junk, guys. The high yield market, the junk bond market, the shale oil junk sure, bond. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, and then, of course, engineering interest rates uh, that require people to look for yield to try to get some sort of return on interest. So it's it's just a crime. It's it goes on and on. Let me ask you this: Russia. You mentioned about Russia wasn't in such bad shape as our uh, as our history books suggested. What about Russia now? Are they Russia, all we all we hear all we hear here? The propaganda in the U.S. is that you know we've got Russia on their heels. Oh no. <laughs> I I was in Russia uh, four weeks ago for extended period of time. I was in Russia in April. I was in Russia in January, which was the peak of the crisis with the ruble falling fifty uh-huh. yeah. percent and oil in the basement. It was under under thirty nine dollars a barrel, I think, at that point. And I tell you, you do not see a people in panic. You do not see a people in rage. They are walking down the streets. They're, uh, January is uh, the Russian Christmas. They were the streets were lighted up in, in the most beautiful way I've ever seen in a in a uh, city in the world around Christmas time. And and the people were happy, friendly. Uh, mm-hmm. There, you know, the times are tight. There's certain things that are not working, but the sanctions have fundamentally backfired on the neoconservatives and the, and the hawks in Washington and Wall Street who, uh, who designed them. And the, the ironic thing is, 
they realized around early January that they were shooting themselves in the foot, but they were, they were risking blowing out the whole uh, half a trillion dollar shale bubble that Wall Street had created over the last five, six years. And uh, if that were to blow, the whole financial system in, uh, in Wall Street could blow with it. And uh, not only that, but they predicated a whole geo-strategy on being the world's largest uh, oil exporter. And that was in danger of collapsing. It's, it's collapsing. All, uh, yeah, it seems, yeah, yeah. It seems, yeah, it seems to be. Okay, so here's the question for today. We want to find out how much longer this sort of uh, the U.S. dollar can remain as the world's reserve currency. Now, it was built on the petrodollar. I think we're in agreement with that. After Nixon took us off the gold standard in 71, uh, Kissinger goes over to Saudi Arabia and arranges uh, with the oil producers to produce oil or to pay for oil in U.S. dollars. That provided a bid under the dollar, right? That, yeah. that provided, well, and it's continuing, yeah, but now we have an oil price that's half of what it was. Uh, is this system in danger of, uh, are, are the, the Wall Street guys, the powers behind the throne here in the uh, U.S. and NATO alliance, in danger of losing the dollar as the world's reserve currency? Well, it's a little more complicated, Jay. The uh, the dollar became the reserve currency in, in 1944 with Bretton Woods because sure. the Federal Reserve had something like 70% of all monetary gold in the world at that point. So every other currency in Europe was forced to peg itself to the dollar, and the dollar was pegged to gold. So they, the other currencies weren't gold-backed. They were pegged mm-hmm. to the dollar. Mm-hmm. And uh, then when, when Nixon was forced because uh, the demands on uh, to exchange dollars for gold, which was how the system worked up to ni- 1971, uh, the demands were so great from Germany, from France, and so forth, they didn't want these inflated dollars that were being inflated by budget deficits for the Vietnam War and the uh, Great Society, whatever. And uh, the Federal Reserve didn't have the gold to back it, so they advised Nixon, Paul Volcker was the one who did it at Treasury at that point, advised Nixon to tear up the Bretton Woods Treaty and tell the world to uh, go take a, take a flight to the moon. So the dollar was backed at that point until 1973 in the oil shock. The dollar was backed by nothing. Mm-hmm. And it went down, I think, 40% within a matter of a few months. So to stabilize it, and this I detail in my book, uh, Century of War, in, in great detail, I have the documents to back it up, uh, they had a meeting in Salchubarden outside of Stockholm, Sweden in May of 1973. Henry Kissinger was among the American invitees. He was uh, Secretary of State. And uh, all the key, David Rockefeller, of course, all the key heads of the oil companies, British and American, and Rothschild was there. And uh, what they talked about, this was a meeting of what's called the Bilderberg uh, Society or Bilderberg Group. Mm-hmm. They talked about a coming 400% increase in the price of crude oil. And rather than talk about how they could persuade OPEC not to make such an increase that would ruin the world economy and the oil market, they talked about what to do with all the dollars. Mm-hmm. So, so this is what saved the dollar. And that's where the petrodollar system came in. Okay, uh, we, only, we only have about a minute left. Uh, how long can this, can this last? Uh, well, it, it are needs, we in danger of losing it now? Okay. It can last as long as there is no credible alternative. The Chinese, through the BRICS Bank, the AIIB, its alliance with Russia, and its uh, 
increase of its gold reserves is working extremely diligently on building a credible alternative. I think the, the bust in the Chinese stock market bubble is forcing them to realize they had some flaws in the model, like getting too much into a Wall Street speculation mode, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm confident they're sorting that out in a good way. All right. And it has to have a credible alternative, and that has to be something with security, military security, and so forth. And that's why there's a war going on from Washington in okay. Ukraine, provoke Russia, and so forth. Uh- Okay, I, I certainly that certainly makes sense to me. We're out of time. I'd love to have you back on to explore this further in the future, uh, if you're willing to come on, William. Sure. Thank you so much for being with us again today. I really enjoy your work, and I want to tell my listeners, it's Engdahl, E-N-G-D-A-H-L, dot oil geopolitics. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Jay. Uh, I have a new website. Good, okay, good the best place to go. William Engdahl, one word, dot com. Very simple. William, William Engdahl, Engdahl dot com. That's E-N-G-D-A-H-L, and we are out of time. WilliamEngdahl.com. Thanks so much for being with me today, William. We look to do it again sometime in the near future. Thank you so much. Well, folks, that's all the time we have. Next week, David McIlvenny will be my guest. Thanks to all of you for listening, and until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno.